Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, excerpts from the closing celebration of Raisa's Tayer's July 2015 exhibition, Chubasco, a tribute to our annual monsoon. The event featured readings by author Margaret Regan and music by Pablo Peregrina. Margaret Regan read some desert passages from her book, Detained and Deported. The award-winning investigative reporter's new book is an intimate look at the people ensnared by the U.S. detention and deportation system, the largest in the world. Drawing on years of reporting in the Arizona-Mexico borderlands, journalist Margaret Regan tells their poignant stories. Regan demonstrates how increasingly draconian detention and deportation policies have broadened police powers while enriching private prison industry whose profits are derived from human suffering. She also documents the rise of resistance, profiling activists and young immigrant dreamers who are fighting for the rights of the undocumented. Margaret Regan is the author of the award-winning book, The Death of Yoseline, Immigration Stories from the Arizona Borderlands, a 2010 Southwest Book of the Year. An editor and writer at the Tucson Weekly, Regan has won many regional and national prizes for her immigration reporting. Pablo Peregrina is a troubadour by trade. The Sonoran-born Peregrina has released two CDs of original music, Border Stories and Songs, and Traveling Souls. As a human rights activist and volunteer, Pablo strives to create awareness through music. The evening began with Pablo Peregrina performing a song about Jocelyn, followed by author Margaret Regan. Uh, when I read this in the weekly, it was very moving for me. And uh, and even when I sing this song, uh, it really, I, I've been told that Jocelyn is here with me. And it's there's a part where I choke. There's a part where I used to sing to my girls, Duermase mi niña, duermase maya, lullaby. And this is what I use on my song. And
Thank you. Thank you. We're going to have Margaret. Thank you. I'm Margaret Regan. I just wanted to say thank you so much to Pablo. That was a wonderful evening five years ago when uh, we were doing this reading and music together, just like we're doing tonight. And just out of the blue, I had no idea he had written a song about Jocelyn, who is uh, a young girl very close to my heart, as you can imagine. I named my last book for her, The Death of Jocelyn. And uh, as Pablo's song recounts, she was a 14-year-old girl who died in the desert about two hours away from where we're sitting right now on her way to get to her mother in Los Angeles. Um, I just before I came down here, I looked up where we are with the numbers of deaths. Most of you are familiar with the um, the uh, the dying of migrants in our southern Arizona borderlands, and uh, the number as of the end of May, 2,824 bodies found since the year 2000. From the year 2000 up until the end of May this year, there's some very good people out there who keep an active count of those people. So. I'm happy to say the deaths are down a little bit over what they were a few years ago. Um, this year we're down to 54, only 54 bodies found since uh, the beginning of October through the end of May, but the previous years were 68 or 100 by that time. And we still don't have the numbers for these hottest months, and as you know, that's when our toll really goes up. Um, so I just wanted to share that a little bit since uh, Pablo was gracious enough to sing that song. I always like to hear it. Um, but tonight I'm going to be reading from my new book, uh, which is kind of conceived as a sequel to The Death of Jocelyn, if that's not too terrible a thing to say. This is about people who successfully have gotten to the United States undocumented and what happens to them after they've been living here for a long time. A lot of them have children who are U.S. citizens, and they're suddenly caught. So I'm going to read to you right now from the introduction to that book that gives you a good idea of the themes. Yolanda Fontes sat in her prison scrubs and watched the families gathered all around her. Husbands were reconnecting with wives, sisters with sisters, mothers with children. It was a sunny Sunday in April, and the families had flocked to the Eloy Detention Center, a dreary for-profit immigration prison in rural Arizona, to visit their detained loved ones. A female prisoner sat with her small son on her lap, her arms wrapped tightly around him, as if she were imagining never letting him go. The aunt, who had brought the little boy, spoke sorrowfully to her sister as the child snuggled in his mother's embrace. Nearby, an imprisoned father sat across a table from his wife, clutching her hand. They were trying to talk, but their four-year-old daughter, hungry and tired, fussed, fussed on the floor below. None of the families in the packed room had any privacy. An impassive guard presided over their melancholy reunions, keeping a close watch on the mothers and fathers dressed in jailbird scrubs. The visiting room was bleak and windowless, lit by glaring prison lights. It was a beautiful spring day outside, but no, for it, no rays of sunlight pierced the cinder block walls. Alone among the detainees in this dark space, Yolanda
Wanda had no family visiting, just me, a writer who had come to hear her story. She was glad to be out of her prison unit, and she was full of smiles, determined to be cheerful. Yet her tale was grim, and she looked at the other detainees' kids wistfully as she recounted it. During the two years she'd spent locked up in Eloy, she'd seen her two little girls and her little boy only sporadically. The children, all American citizens, lived in a distant suburb northwest of Phoenix. They came to visit their mom only when a relative or friend could spare the time to drive the 200-mile round trip to Eloy. The last time Yolanda had seen them was two months before. Yolanda was 32. She'd slipped into Arizona from Mexico 17 years before when she was just 15. She spoke flawless English, and even though she had no papers, she'd almost never had any difficulty finding a job. And until two years ago, she'd never had trouble with immigration either. But the father of her two younger children regularly beat her, and one attack triggered a series of disasters that eventually landed her in jail and now in detention. The abusive ex had the two kids, and Yolanda was facing deportation. She could have accepted removal to Mexico right away and gotten out of Eloy, but if she were deported, she would lose her children. So she stayed in the prison month after month, fighting her case, hoping to persuade a judge to overturn the deportation order, praying to get back to her daughters and her son. Yolanda's spirits flagged just once during the two hours we talked. The last time the kids came to see her, she said, her five-year-old, little V, had looked at her suspiciously. He told me I didn't look like his mother, she said, her eyes filling with tears. Her own child was starting to forget her. Down in Nogales, on the Mexican side of the border, Gustavo Sanchez Perez was just as worried about his kids. He was a 25-year-old landscaper from Phoenix. I met him early one hot July morning at a Catholic comedor, just steps from the international line. He was one of 60 deportees eating a hearty breakfast of beans and rice in a humble dining hall run by an order of Mexican nuns. Like Yolanda, Gustavo had moved with his family from Mexico to the United States as a child. Born in Veracruz, he'd come to Phoenix at the age of eight and lived there ever since. He spoke perfect English. He and his wife had two small children, a boy of four and a baby girl, both of them U.S. citizens. Gustavo had been arrested in Phoenix for riding his bicycle at night without a light and then detained by ICE. He'd rotated through several detention centers in Arizona and in Colorado before being tossed back over the border into Nogales. He'd always worked hard to support his children. What was their mother doing now, he wondered, without his wages coming in? He was staying in a shelter, but he would have to leave soon. Nogales was reeling under a deluge of deportees from the United States, and the town's shelters didn't have the resources to house those deportados longer than three days. Gustavo would have to move on. His mother in Phoenix had advised him to go back to Veracruz, but he had no intention of returning to a place where everyone was a stranger. He knew where he needed to be, with his children, at home, in Phoenix. The way 
way to get back to them lay over the border and through the Arizona desert. But the journey would be perilous in more ways than one. He could die out there in the heat, as so many had done before him. And if he made it through, he ran the risk of arrest. If they catch me, he said, I get 10 years in jail. The human impact of these deportations cannot be overstated. Families have been torn apart. Mothers and fathers have been turned into single parents. Breadwinners have disappeared. Children, many of them US citizens, have lost one or both parents, and some have ended up in foster care. In the first six months of 2011, the year that Gustavo, father of two, first turned up in Novales, no fewer than 46,000 deportees were mothers and fathers whose children were left behind in the United States. As I was researching this book, I met many of these displaced people, both in the deportee shelters in Novales and the detention centers in Arizona. They were taxi drivers and fruit pickers, construction workers and fast food servers, waitresses and hotel housekeepers. Some had lived like third world campesinos in the United States, speaking Spanish and living in holy Mexican communities, doing the lowest of low paid labor. Others were indistinguishable from American citizens. Dreamers, young and educated, had been in the United States since they were children and lived a more typically American life. They'd gone to public school, graduated from high school, and aspired to college. Then there were the immigrants who'd lived for years in Chicago or Florida or Virginia and got tripped up at the border after going back to Mexico or Guatemala to visit their families. Saddest and most determined were the parents separated from their kids, the Yolandas waiting out detention, the Gustavos plotting a dangerous desert hike. I rarely saw the kids who'd lost a parent, but when I did, it was painful. The little girl I saw crying under the table in the family waiting room at Eloy haunts me still. Her name was Jacqueline. She was an American citizen, and she was four years old. It struck me that this tiny child was bearing the full burden of her country's immigration policies on her own small soldiers and the weight of it was crushing her. Confronted with the scary jail, the angry guards, her unhappy mother, and the father who had become a stranger to her, she responded in the only way she could. She threw herself down onto the floor, clenched her fists, and wailed. So that's, that's what this book is about. It's divided up into a section on the detention centers and a section on the deportations. And there's also a section of um, resistance to everything that's happening. Um, I didn't really know that much about the detention centers when I was researching my previous book, The Death of Jocelyn. I was focusing on the people who had died in the desert. But um, there was a late chapter in that book of a group of young people that came to be known as the Panda Express 11. Um, some of you may remember their story. They had all been working at the Panda Express at Grant Swan. It turned out 11 out of the 12 or 13 workers in there were undocumented, and Panda Express, of course, denied any knowledge of them. Um, 
being without papers. But they were mostly young people and they had worked for um, Panda Express for a long time. And they were charged with a felony identity theft because most of them had uh, social security numbers that were not, well, they had social securities that were not their own. They were using fake numbers. They were charged with a felony. And because until this past year when um, a judge ruled it unconstitutional, um, immigrants arrested for any crime at all were not eligible for bail. That has now been overturned. But these people charged with this identity theft were held in Pima County Jail for about four months and they couldn't see their children all that time. They had 11 children between them. But then they had a wonderful attorney, Margo Cowan, who got them off on a misdemeanor pretending to be Panda Express employees. <laughs> so that was pretty wonderful. And the judge sentenced them to time served. And But at the end of that trial, which I went to, um, ICE was waiting to take them to the detention centers. And um, eight out of the 11 were deported pretty quickly, but three of them, the three that I got to know, were held in the detention centers for five months. Um, a young woman named Marlene had a little baby named Freddie, and uh, when she finally got out of detention, I went to see her and I sat with her in her kitchen in a trailer on Southside Tucson, and her little baby, who had not seen her for five months since he was eight months old, was terrified of her, and he refused to go to her. He sat in his grandmother's lap and refused to see his mother. And Marlene said to me, you know, the detention center was so horrible in every way, it was humiliating. I always thought I was such a good worker. She was so proud that she had graduated from high school. She had always held jobs. She'd worked really hard at Panda Express for four years. Um, but she felt she was treated like a criminal and that was completely humiliating. So that was a big thing about the detention center. And then the other thing was the separation from her child. She said, I will just never forget what they did to us, that they separated me from my little boy. So after I heard the stories of the Panda Express, you know, I really wanted to learn about the detention centers. And um, it's a pretty big story that a lot of us are really just starting to learn about. Um, we have about 250 detention centers in the United States, but only about 11 of them are actually run by the US government. The rest of them are a combination of the private prisons, like the Corrections Corporation of America we've been hearing so much about which runs Eloy, and little county jails that are, you know, trying to make money the way that the, uh, the private prisons are trying to make. Pinal County Jail, you guys know about that Sheriff Cole Babu up there running that. Um, that was named one of the worst detention centers in America for quite a long time, and it was so bad that even ICE finally yanked their contract. Um, they would threaten to put people in Pinal County Jail if they didn't behave in the other They didn't allow the immigrant detainees ever to go outside, ever. Um, and the people who were there for criminal offenses rather than uh, immigration offenses could go out regularly to an exercise yard. But the deta immigrant detainees were kept in a room that looked kind of like their high school gym with a very high window where the sunlight came in for an hour a day. Um, so they would put these men in there, they were all men, and they would take turns sitting in the sunlight, one of them told me. So the detention centers are something that we really all uh, need to learn about. Um, I'm gonna hand this over again to Pablo in a minute if he's ready to go back on. 
But I wanted to share some good news about the detention center. I don't know anybody saw this story today in the New York Times. Um, you, you probably remember last year when the women and children were coming over in large numbers and they came through Tucson and we established family detention centers, fairly new thing in the United States where we were detaining babies and toddlers and small children along with their mothers. And yesterday, a judge, a federal judge ruled that the Obama administration's detention of children and their mothers who were caught crossing the border is a serious violation of long-standing court settlement and that the families should be released as quickly as possible. So that's really good news that several thousand women and children being held in a private prison in Texas will be released within a very short time. So yeah, that's a really important court ruling um, because we actually have a law from 1997 that the United States is never allowed to uh, put children in jails. And um, you would have thought we've had that law before that, but that's when you know, this case dates, they're, they're citing a case law from 1997 that this was a clear violation of that law. So something to celebrate. So Pablo, are you ready to go back on? Be here, okay. <laughs> and then I'll come back and I'll read you uh, another story from the book. So thanks. Thank you. This next song is called uh, A Migrant Sufrimiento. And Michael Hyatt put a, another compilation called Mercy on the Migrant Trail. And a bunch of local artists contributed uh, a song. And um, when I sing in Spanish, it's the migrant who's asking God to plead his life, to, to, to uh, spare his life. And he says, I can't walk, I have blisters on my feet, I feel like I'm crossing another border. But on the other side, death is waiting for me, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And I met a, a, a reverend from Alabama that participated in the, the Walk for Life. That is, every year that they walk from Sasabe to Tucson. And she put out a, a, a border documentary called the Second Cooler. Second Cooler is a second refrigerated building that they, that the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office put. And Martin Sheen is a narrator. And so what I would do is with, with Humane Borders, we would go every evening and bring water to the campsite. Of course, I always brought my guitar, and when Cat was not around, then I could play my <laughs> border song. So, um, so anyway, I have two of my songs on, on this soundtrack, and I'm just sharing the movement. I am here to actually support whoever is doing any kind of border event. <clears throat> so this is called a migrant sufrimiento.
the cry of many migrants that were left behind and died. Echoing through the canyons and through the desert air, the cry of their last dying words. And many of these words will never ever be heard. And for those, the lucky ones, a hunting memory chips away inside their mind Just to think they walked away And left someone behind To know they'll die Estoy muy cansado y tengo mucha sed. Estoy adolorido con ampollas en mis pies. Ayúdame, Señor, que mi muerte se espere hasta después. Y yo siento que otra frontera estoy cruzando y del otro lado la muerte me está esperando no quiero morir been listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson with excerpts from the closing celebration of Raices Taller's July 2015 exhibition Chubasco, a tribute to our annual monsoon. 
The event featured readings by author Margaret Regan and music by Pablo Peregrina. This has been part one of a multi-part series.